Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that you have been speaking to us uh, by your Spirit through your Word as it's been read and sung. Uh, and we pray, Heavenly Father, now that you'll continue to do that as we consider this passage together. Uh, may your Spirit enable me to preach your Word rightly and faithfully in His power. Uh, and may that Spirit be at work in each one of our hearts, uh, opening our eyes uh, to see Jesus, uh, to, to love Him uh, and obey Him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The world in general hates Jesus. There are some parts of the world where anything to do with him is banned. There are places where his holy name is used as a swear word. But there are many more parts of the world where opposition to him is far more subtle. People who hate the real Jesus create a false one. That they say they like Jesus, they admire him, they respect him. But the Jesus they like and admire and respect is not the real Jesus. It is a made-up, tame Jesus. One who will nicely fit in with whatever philosophy or religion or ethic they are promoting. The real Jesus, the Jesus that we meet today in John's Gospel, is rejected and ignored. And that is just as much a hatred of the real Jesus as banning every mention of him. But why do people hate Jesus? Well, before we look at the answer to that question, let's briefly recall what we saw in the first four chapters of John's Gospel uh, last year, uh, towards the end of last year, when we were doing this, this series. Uh, in the first part of chapter 1, we saw that the Word, the Light, the Son, was God with God. And that He became flesh and dwelt among us. He was the perfect revelation of God to us. And then we saw that John the Baptist was sent by God to prepare the way for His coming. And we saw how some of John's disciples actually left Him as a result to follow Jesus, uh, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. In chapter 2, we saw Jesus and his disciples visiting a, a wedding in Cana of Galilee and Jesus turning the water into wine, the first of his signs there. And then we saw him, him clearing the temple uh, and the dispute with the Jews about that. And we saw him claim to be the true temple, the place where we really meet God. And then in chapter 3, we saw his conversation with Nicodemus. And we saw that Jesus taught that we need to be born again if we're to enter the kingdom of God. And we can't do that. Only the Holy Spirit can give us new birth. And we saw the great promise of John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And then in the second half of chapter 3, we saw Jesus becoming more popular than John the Baptist, but John was okay with that because his job was to prepare the way. Now Jesus must become greater, he must become less. And yet at the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus is the one who leaves Judea and he heads up north to Galilee. And on the way, he passes through Samaria and he has this wonderful conversation with a woman at the well where he offers her living water, uh, which we later discover stands for the Spirit whom he gives to give life. And the result was that she, as well as many other Samaritans, believe in Jesus and they come to worship God in spirit and in truth. Yeah, that is through him. And at the end of chapter 4, Jesus heals a boy from a distance. A royal official comes to believe because of this sign. We saw so many things about Jesus in John 1-4 last year, but we didn't see much in terms of people hating him. 
But all that is about to change here in chapter 5. The Jews who want to persecute him and to kill him. And here we will see two reasons why. Uh, you can see them on the outline. Uh, first of all, they hate Jesus because he cuts across human religion. And second, they hate Jesus because he claims to be God. Well, we see the first of those reasons in the incident that John records for us in verses 1 to 16. The setting, John tells us in verse 1, is a feast of the Jews. We're not told which feast, so that can't be the important thing here. But Jesus is in Jerusalem for the feast. He's come back to Jerusalem. And when he comes back to Jerusalem, specifically, he's come to this place, this pool we see in verse 2. Uh, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Right? Un now, until the 19th century, there was no evidence outside John's Gospel for the existence of this pool. And so some people said, oh, John made it up. Uh, more recent archaeology, as well as recently discovered Hebrew scrolls, have of course shown John to be accurate, which is hardly surprising. This Bethesda pool was actually in the northeast corner of the city, just north of the temple. And verse 5 tells us it has five roof colonnades. In, in, in classical architecture, a colonnade is a, is a long sequence of columns joined at the top. They can be freestanding or they can be part of a building. And the Israeli museum made a model of the pool. Uh, and here it is, there's a picture of it in the handout. Uh, and you see the pool there in the middle and the five colonnades, one on each side and then one straight across the middle. Well, verse 3 tells us in these colonnades, verse 3, lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. So there's all these sick people there, and probably because they believed in the healing power of the waters. Now, later on, when, when copies were made of John's Gospel, uh, some scribes added a little bit to explain this. You can find what they added down there in the footnotes. Right and look at the footnotes, and you look at footnote 5 there, uh, and you see that... Uh, it talks about uh, the angel of the Lord coming down at certain seasons into the pool and stirs the water, and whoever, whoever steps in first after the stirring is, is healed of whatever disease he has. Now, that, that bit down there actually is not part of the original John's Gospel. Therefore, it's not part of God's Word. The earliest copies of John don't have it. Uh, but we see an explanation there from some of the early scribes as to why they thought this was happening. And it may well be that that's what some of the people there thought as well. But anyway, out of all the, the sick and infirm people who were there, the focus narrows down to one, one man, in verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. He was just lying there. Whatever was wrong with him means he, he, he couldn't put himself into the pool. He was, he was helpless. And he's been like that for 38 years now, in Jewish thought, one generation is 40 years. And so he's been there for nearly a whole generation. Can you believe that? What hope would he have now? He is helpless. He is hopeless. And it's to this helpless, hopeless man that Jesus comes. In verse 6, he says, Jesus saw him lying there. He knew he'd been there for such a long time. And he says to him, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Now you might think that's a bit of a strange question, but after 38 years, 
Sometimes people don't want to be healed because that illness is part of their life and strategy. Uh, this man has been there for 38 years. Presumably people have been feeding him out of pity and, and now if he gets better, then he'll have to go and work, wouldn't he? Do, do you want to be healed? Now this invalid does want to be healed, but he can't heal himself. In fact, he cannot even get to the place where he thinks is the source of healing. In verse 7, he says, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. As far as he's concerned, he's been here for 38 years. He wants to be healed, but he can't get to the water. And there's no one to help him go down. And so he's helpless. Right? Try going to him and say, oh, God helps those who help themselves. He can't. Well, what is Jesus going to do to this hopeless, helpless man? Jesus issues him a command. Verse 8. Jesus says to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And Jesus is so powerful. His word is so powerful. His voice is so powerful that this man who had been lying there for 38 years obeys him. Verse 9. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Jesus gave him new life. Jesus gave him a fresh start. Jesus took away his hopelessness and helplessness. And when Jesus said, get up, the one who could not get up, got up. And he got up so well that he was even able to carry his mat and walk. But things are not quite straightforward here. There's a complication. And we see the nature of it at the end of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. In the Old Testament, God gave the Sabbath day, Saturday, for us, for his people to rest. He forbade his people to work on the Sabbath. That was, that was God's law. Uh, and we saw one of, part of that in, the, in, in our Old Testament reading tonight. But Jewish tradition had added all kinds of things, all kinds of laws about what you, you can and can't do on the Sabbath. And, and Jesus didn't like that. On another occasion, he had a huge rant at the Jews for the way they were putting tradition above Scripture. As far as he was concerned, there's a clear distinction. Scripture must be obeyed. God's word is God's word. But the tradition of the elders, that's just a human invention. That is human religion. It's not God's word. And while Jesus was always obedient to God's word, he was never afraid to challenge human religion. God had said not to work on the Sabbath. But carrying a straw mat is hardly the man's work. Yet under the tradition of the elders, human religious rules, this was considered prohibited and so he was breaking the law. And so when the Jews saw that this man was healed and walking around with his, with his mat, how did they respond? Well, verse 10, they say to him, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. After 38 years of lying there doing nothing, he finally gets up and the first thing they go, oh, no, 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 you can't do that. Maybe tomorrow, lah. 
And the man explains. It's not as if he's purposely trying to go against the, tra the, the tradition of the elders. He, he's just being healed, and, and part of the healing was his command. Uh, verse 11, he says, but the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And so now they are interested in finding out who healed him. Not because they think, wow, so good, who is this guy who's healed him? But because they want to know who has told him to break the Sabbath. And so they asked the man in verse 12, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But he doesn't know. How could he not know who healed him? Well, verse 13 says, the man who had been healed didn't know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. After healing the man, Jesus quickly slipped away, presumably because if more, so many sick people there, if, if, you know, they discover that, that this is what he can do, everyone want to be healed, there'll be, be no end to it. But, but Jesus doesn't just leave the man not knowing who healed him. He does follow up later. Afterwards, verse 14, Jesus found him in the temple. Remember, the temple is just a little bit south from here. And he's there in the temple. Jesus finds him. And what does Jesus say? He says to him, see you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, it's not always someone's sin that causes something bad to happen to them. Oftentimes, it's not their fault. But sometimes it is, and it sounds like this is one of those times. And so Jesus warns him not to sin, or, or next time it will be even worse. But now he's seen Jesus and talked with Jesus. He's kind of like worked out who he is, and he reports him to the authorities. In verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And that, verse 16, was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. He was healing, and he was telling the person who healed to take up his mat and walk. And the religious leaders of his day hated him. Jesus broke through those religious barriers to save that man. And actually, come to think of it, he did it to save us as well. You see, all of us were like that man. We were terribly lost in sin. We were helpless. Couldn't do anything to save ourselves. We were hopeless. You could have left us there for all eternity. We still wouldn't be able to fix our own problem or move ourselves to a place where we can. We could not help ourselves. And as Jesus came to that man, so he came to us. And he says, do you want to be saved? Do you want to be healed from sin? And we said, Lord, I can't. I can't do it. And no one can help me. And then Jesus spoke his gospel word to us. He told us to repent and believe in him. We could never have done that ourselves. But when Jesus called us, his word was so powerful, his voice was so powerful, that we who were dead in sin got up and obeyed him. And that was a miracle, just as much as the healing of this man was. Jesus gave us new life. 
He gave us a fresh start. He took away our sins by his death for them on the cross. He took away our hopelessness and helplessness because now we are in him. We have an eternity with him. Just like he saved that paralyzed man, Jesus has saved us. And like he told the paralyzed man, so he tells us, go and sin no more. I have saved you from the consequences of your sin. Do not go back to it. In order to save us, Jesus cut across human religion. For when he said those saving words, repent and follow me, he was commanding us to put loyalty to him above every way of human religious thinking. For some of us who came from non-Christian religions, that meant leaving behind our old religion to serve a new master. It meant saying no to our idols, to some of our customs, to false worship, to laws that bound us, to superstitions, and most of all to the, the very idea that by observing the rules, any rules, we could make ourselves acceptable to God. It meant breaking the law of the old religion, like the man who carried his mat on the Sabbath. No wonder the leaders and guardians of the old religion are unhappy with us. No wonder they will hate Jesus, who commands us to do that. But you know, it's not just those of us who came from non-Christian religions for, for which this is a, as a real thing. It, it affects us all. The Jewish religion of Jesus' day was, was based on God's word, but also had an overlay of human tradition. And the problem is that that human tradition side, instead of playing a supportive role, became so strong that it obscured the word of God. That is why the Jews didn't recognize Jesus, even when the Old Testament speaks so clearly of him. And in every church you go to, there is a divine reality of God's word and and there is also human tradition. Now, tradition is not a bad thing in itself. It can be very good. In fact, it's necessary. We need it. But it cannot be at the same level as Scripture, which is God's Word. Human tradition is always tentative. It is always subject to Scripture. It's always negotiable. And so for us, we need to dis learn to distinguish what is just human and therefore flexible and what is from God and is therefore not. Jesus was very clear about the difference. And he was willing to break the religious traditions of his day in order to save this man. But the Jews, who could not see the difference, hated him for it. People hated Jesus because he cut across human religion. Are you and I willing to cut across human religion to save others? The second reason they hated Jesus comes from Jesus' response to their objection. 
See, when the Jews objected to Jesus healing on the Sabbath, he could have answered them in terms of their adding tradition to the word of God as he did it on other occasions. But instead of arguing with them about that or what is work and what is not work, he, he actually uses the, contro- he uses the controversy to make a very big theological claim. He starts by arguing in verse 17 that his father is always working. And at one level, everyone agreed with that. You see, in Genesis, God rested on the Sabbath day, but that's about enjoying the creation that he made in relationship. But it's not as if every Saturday God just stops doing everything. Right? Even the rabbi said if God didn't work on the Sabbath, then, then the world would fail to exist. But the way they explained it actually is very interesting. According to that tradition, you, you cannot carry something from one domain to another on the Sabbath. But they say, well, since the whole world is God's domain, then whatever he does doesn't break the Sabbath because it's all within that domain. So it's okay for God to work on the Sabbath. Now, you may not be very impressed by the argument, uh, but the point is that everyone agreed that God is able to work on the Sabbath. And then Jesus says this, verse 17. My father is working until now, and I am working. His justification for working on the Sabbath is his father works on the Sabbath. Jesus can work on the Sabbath because that's what the father does. And God can work on the Sabbath without breaking the law precisely because he is God. Who does Jesus think he is? God? Verse 18. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. For monotheistic Jews, for someone to claim to be equal with God, that is is just unthinkable. It's an insult to God for a man to, to claim to be equal with him. There's hardly anything worse you could possibly do. This is blasphemy, deserving of death. Unless, of course, it's true love. But since they've already written Jesus off, they're, they're convinced it's not. And so they seek all the more to kill him. And they think that that's the right thing to do. And friends, people still hate Jesus today for this. Human religion and philosophy may see his claims as blasphemous or laughable. Sinful human beings will seek to reject him as God because, well, if he really is God, then we're obliged to listen to him and obey him. If he's God, he has the right to rule our lives. If he is God, he deserves to be known and worshipped as God by everyone. And and everyone who treats him less than God is failing to give him the honor that he deserves. And, And that itself is a blasphemy. But people don't want to acknowledge that. And so they reject him. Jesus claims to be equal with God, and people hate him for it. So people hate Jesus because he cuts across human religion, and people hate Jesus because he claims to be equal with God. 
What does the world do when it hates Jesus? Well, the Jews of his day had him crucified. They tried him for blasphemy, found him guilty, pronounced the death sentence, handed him over to the Romans on a charge of treason, because that's the charge that will stick with the Romans, and they took the bait. They had him killed in a cruel, torturous way. That is the world's hatred of Jesus. And today's world still hates Jesus. We've already seen there are places where Christians are persecuted and Christianity is banned. But we've also seen how many just want to obliterate the memory of the real Jesus whom they hate and replace it with a new, reconstructed Jesus, a false Jesus. A Jesus who would never challenge human religion. A Jesus who would never claim to be God. And whenever you see that kind of Jesus being presented, you know it's because the world hates the real Jesus. The Jesus whom we meet in the scriptures. The Jesus that we've read about this evening. A week or so ago, there was an epiphany service at St. Mary's Cathedral. Not this one, the one in Glasgow. And in that service, one of the readings was taken, instead of from the Bible, from the book of another religion. And the passage read, specifically denied that Jesus is God's Son. What a terrible blasphemy. But that is what eventually happens when the church wants to be popular with the world. When the church does not want to cut across human religion. When the church doesn't want to proclaim Jesus as truly and objectively, really, equal with God. The night before he was crucified, Jesus gave his disciples a warning. If the world hates you, he said, bear in mind that it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And friends, that warning is for us as well. We follow the Jesus who cuts across human religion to save people. We must be prepared to do the same. And we must be prepared to be hated for doing it. We follow the Jesus who claims to be equal with God. We must be prepared to honor him, serve him, worship him, and proclaim him as God whom he is. People hated him for that. And they will hate us as well. People hated Jesus for doing these things. We must be prepared to join him in being hated. But like him, we must respond with love. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for sending your Son, the Lord Jesus, to save us. Thank you that when we were helpless and hopeless in sin, he died for us. We thank you that he came to us with his gospel word, that he commanded us to repent and believe in him, that he did that wonderful miracle of raising us from the death of sin to life in him. We know that we couldn't have done that but that he has done that for us. We thank you so much. Father, we know that, that your son was hated because he cut across human religion. We pray that, pray that you'll help us to be prepared for the same. We know that your son was hated because he claimed to be equal with you, his Father. We pray that you help us to hold fast to this truth and not to compromise this, even if we are hated for it. We pray that you help us to follow this Savior who raised us up even though it's not a popular thing in the eyes of the world. Help us to be faithful to him. And when we are hated, help us like him to love. And we pray this in his name. Amen.